I would like to talk about the concept of freedom for a few minutes, though. Um, Martin Luther King, which is going to be a, a really um, familiar person in, in our nation's history for you to, to think of, uh, he, he wasn't necessarily the best orator of the civil rights movement. He didn't have the best plan. He, he was a great preacher, one of the best movers of, of people's spirits I think I've ever seen. I was thinking of showing you a clip, and then uh, I, I forgot to, to pull it up. <laughs> 250,000 people show up in Washington, D.C. without social media, without flyers, without advertisements on television. 250,000 people show up. 25% of them were actually not African-American, but were white. 250,000 people. Why? Not because of his plan. In fact, not one of you could probably tell me what his plan was. It was because of what he believed. It was the vision that he gave the people. And that when they were given that vision, they said, that's what I believe. That's, that's what I want my vision of my kids in our country to look like. He inspired them with a vision. And I wonder if that's the simple act of what Jesus is trying to get at us. I want to give you a vision of what heaven on earth looks like. It's so attractive that people come and they drink. And the civil rights movement wasn't actually just about freedom, it was about, it was about justice. Freedom was a genius name to give the social justice element because freedom moves our insides. We were wired for freedom. I want to highlight a couple of things. 250,000 people, because they believed. They believed in, in two things that Martin Luther King Jr. said. He said there were two laws, the laws of a higher authority and the laws of man. And it's not until the laws made by man are consistent with the laws of the higher authority that we will live in a just world. The civil rights movement was the perfect stage to bring his cause to life. We didn't follow him for him, but for ourselves, which is interesting. He didn't give a planned 12-point step of freedom, but he gave a, I have a dream. Plan. Simon Sinek says this, I've quoted it before, leaders hold a position of power or authority, but those who lead inspire us. That's where the vision comes in. We follow those who lead not because we have to, but because we want to. That's the element of free will that's in every human being. We follow them not for them, but for ourselves. And that's what's interesting, I think, that we often miss in the church, is that because we do it for the Lord, we miss that He wants us to follow Him for ourselves. He wants our free will as worshipers to be free to not follow him so that when we say yes to him, it's with love. And it's those who start with the concept of why are we doing this who have the ability to inspire those around them and to find others who inspire them as well. That concept of why ties into this mini-series we've been doing. We've been going back and forth between highlighting the church and highlighting 
the seven stories that shape your life coming out of the, the scriptures. And the first story was creation, which ultimately asks the question of why. Why are we here and what is really happening in the story? And what's happening is that the main character, God, is after something. There's the concept of intention and obstacle. Every great story has intention and obstacle. What does the main character want? God wants you. What's standing in the way? What's the obstacle? Our trust. And he has, to, he has to deal with our shame that causes us to not let him look at us. That's what happened in the garden. That's the story that we're in. That's how we find our why. And then we find our calling, our vocation. And that calling is established by the voice that declares over you who you are, apart from an identity in works. And then that leads us today into this concept of freedom, which is the liberating reality of what Jesus builds upon in the great story of freedom throughout all of Scripture and all of human history. I, I love the, the definition of liberty that I found, and it's the state of being free within society from oppressive restrictions imposed by authority. So liberty and freedom, they're not the same thing, they work together. But your freedom has to understand liberty the Statue of Liberty isn't the Statue of Freedom, it's the Statue of Liberty. It's the statue of the state of being free within this society from oppressive restrictions that are imposed by authority. That's liberty. That's liberation. And that's the story that God is telling that you and I are invited into. Jewish Passover liturgy, if you, if, uh, I, I want to give due credit to some of this inspiration that I'm, I'm bringing today. When we were in France, we went through the seven stories with Gerard and Chrissy Kelly. And, and so I'm kind of giving snippets this fall of some of the things that we gleaned as a team when we were there. And so I just want to say that from the get-go, because a lot of this is me um, forming some of my notes that I've taken from him. But Gerard shared this, this Jewish Passover liturgy that I thought was uh, really telling. So the Jews over Passover every year, they're remembering the Exodus which is ultimately a story of their freedom from slavery to freedom. And it says this, they, they read this every year around the Passover. Had the Holy One, blessed be He, not taken our ancestors out of Egypt, then we, our children and our grandchildren, would still be enslaved by Pharaoh in Egypt. Therefore, even if we were all wise, all men of understanding, all well-versed in Torah, we would still be commanded to tell about the Exodus. Whoever tells the story at length is worthy of being praised. He reminded us there's a painting of Rembrandt. Any Rembrandt fans? I'd like to say I'm a Rembrandt fan, but um, I don't know what he painted most of the time. I was watching Jeopardy last night with, uh, with the family. By the way, my Uncle Mark and Cousin Eric are here. You can say hi. Hey, family time. So at the end of family time, when we're kind of like all, I don't know how we started watching Jeopardy. But uh, something, some question went up, and it was about some 18th century European, and it was like the answer was Van Gogh, but it wasn't about it was him being a scientist instead of an artist. It was very confusing. I'm like, how do you not call Van Gogh a painter or an artist? So maybe Rembrandt was more than just a painter or artist. I know all the names. I know nothing of what they did typically. Sue me. Be, be offended. Whatever. But Rembrandt painted this painting of Jesus on the cross. And in this painting, it was said that one of his friends came up to him and said, one of the people in the crowd looks like you. And he goes, it is me because I was there. 
the theology in that. And I, I trust that we have artists that have that level of depth in their theology. Because what he is doing in his work of art is making the theological statement that is absolutely sound. That what Christ did, and this has been something that the Jews have been saying every Passover, every feast, every celebration, is not just that we remember, but when they say we remember, it's a declaration that we were there. Because in the heart of God is this reality that everything he does is past, present, and future. The work of Jesus is past, present, and future. What he did for you then is as if you were there. And when we make that declaration that we remember, when we take communion, when we celebrate with family, when we read the scripture, you're saying, I was there. I was there. I was there. Some of you need that declaration this morning because it doesn't feel like it. And it's okay to declare things that you don't feel. I was there. So, the civil rights movement I mentioned was about justice, but it was more than that. He talked about freedom, and it, they named it as a movement of freedom because it's so deep in our culture and our human spirit, this concept of freedom. And there's this deep desire I think all of us have to address the slavery in our own spirit. Uh, not a single person in the room has been an actual slave unless I have messed up your story. We actually got to meet some slaves in, in France. Some of these kids that we met, the refugees, had to go into slavery in North Africa in order to get over into uh, mainland Europe. Unbelievable stories. But the reality is, is there's a concept of slavery, and even if you go um, to John, is that where I'm going first, John? Yeah, into John 8. I want to read this really quick. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, this is John 8, 31. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We know that really, really well. But the context is this. He answers them. We are, they answer him. We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. In other words, the, the religious leaders there are like, how do you kind of talk to us like that? We haven't been enslaved like they were. Already back then in the time of Jesus, they're basically saying, I can't identify with a slave mindset. We do the same thing today, and we think we can't identify with the slave mindset. But the slave mindset is anything that keeps you from walking out your calling, anything that's blocking you. We all have things that are blocking us from our purpose and our destiny. So let's take for a moment and say, like, I have issues with slavery. If you can, if you can open yourself up to that reality, you're going to open yourself up to measures of freedom that you haven't had access to before. Jesus answers them, truly I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. In other words, sin is actually a slave master. When, so when you talk about the concept of, of brokenness, of living in a way that's anything contrary to your fullness of identity and purposes, you are a slave to that thing, and the slave does not remain in the house forever, he says. The son remains forever. So what he's saying is, I have this house. The slave can't stay there. Only the son can stay there. If you do not take on the identity as being a child of God like I am and seeing the Father as your Father, you will not be able to stay in the house that I am establishing for you. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my Father, and you do what you have heard from your Father. And they 
Typically in the translations, when he says, your fa my father, it's capitalized because he's speaking of God. And he says, your father, it's lowercase because he's saying, you do not see the father as your father like I do. And therefore, you cannot see like I see. You can only hear the words that have been given you that are not truth. But I have the truth. And the voice of my truth will set you free. I'm going to keep going. I would have liked to explain that more. I hope that did something in your spirit. Yes, in Jesus' name. Say that if you agree. Amen. Okay. So, God has an amazingly deep, passionate place for your freedom. I don't think we fully believe that God actually is passionate about our freedom. But if we see the entire story of Scripture as a story of Him pursuing freedom for us that ultimately climaxes in the sacrifice of the Son, Jesus, then we realize that everything that's been happening is all in this pursuit for your freedom. And therefore, your father isn't against you for freedom. He's for your freedom. You know this in some facets, but your spirits are always held back because if there's anything in your life that you don't believe that God's best is for you to be free, you don't actually believe that he wants you free, and you still are living under the lies of slavery. Freedom is God's heart for you always, 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 always. It's personal, but it's also societal. We have to be a people. The, the church throughout history has made a couple mistakes. Lots of churches go after societal freedom, and then they get really into social justice. And then the other side of the church, and that's fine and good, and we should, and we have to. And then the other side of that is that they seem to be the churches that then don't go after personal freedom. And then there's the churches that go after the personal freedom, and then they just have these, these blinders on to everything that's happening around them. It doesn't have to be that complicated, though, does it? And we can be the people that forge into that territory and say, we're going we're gonna to have our eyes open. We're going to see what's happening around us in our community and in the nations, whether it's Hong Kong or down the street. And we're going to be a people that take this reality of freedom and say, this applies to every person I meet, every community I meet, every nation on this face of this planet. And there's something of the heart of God that I can partner in in that. And at the same time, this has to be present in my reality, in my home, in my workplace, in my thought life, every single day of my life. This has to be the place that we dwell in, that we abide in, that we live in. So it's personal and societal. Um, Gerard quoted Bill Johnson, which is always good for me because I never get tired of quoting Bill Johnson. And he says that isn't it interesting that there's this image of salvation as both a wide open gate in scripture, but also Jesus talks about this narrow door. So we have, do, we, do we have a wide open image of this, these expansive fields? I said, I think I said a wide open gate. A wide open field. So there's all these, these, this imagery of wide open spacious places. Um, back in, in, in Joshua, if I can find that scripture off the top of my notes. Joshua talks about this, you know, ex, that, there's, that there, take courage and take the land and take this place and all, this, all that good stuff. And the reality is, is sometimes we're missing uh, or we, we know we have these scriptures of expansiveness, and we kind of look at it as taking territory, land, bigness. But we don't know how to do that in our, our spirits, individually. And the reality is, is that salvation, and when Jesus talks about things, he talks about wide open spaces, but a narrow gate. And so what does that mean? Well, people can come from all kinds of different places, but they discover who they are in the wide open space that God is inviting them into by coming into the reality of what Jesus says they are. He's the only voice that speaks on behalf of the Father. That's the gate. 
but that gate leads you into this beautiful, expansive place. And while we were on this you know, retreat in France, they, he played this real cheesy video of these sheep being herded in like a New Zealand field. Sue and I dated in New Zealand with some sheep, and, and it kind of brought me back to my, my, my lovey romantic days in the, the fields, the shires of New Zealand. And the, the image was all these sheep are being kind of herded, and it has this like type music. And, and, and you see all these sheep just happily kind of going into this narrow little door and then, and then back out into this huge field. And so the idea was, is yes, there's this, there's this one gate for them, but they all can come from wherever they've been. And the idea here is wherever you are in humanity, whatever your uniqueness is, what you look like, feel like, cultural-wise, what you carry, your giftedness, whatever it is, it doesn't matter where you're coming from. You can all come to Jesus, and then he just launches you into this new territory, this fresh pasture to graze from. And you don't have to be anyone different. You don't have to look like any other of the sheep. He's your access point to be free. That's an amazing part of our story and our message, isn't it? And so there's two parts, the narrowness and the spaciousness of our job. The narrowness of our job is simply focusing on Jesus. The spaciousness is that we now get to work and with a life that's wide open and that every single person has a place and identity and a purpose, whether it's a cultural freedom or just the fact that we, we get to embrace stupid people that do stupid things. And we don't have to control them out of fear that they're going to do something stupid. And I feel like that's even something to encourage us as, as a people. What happens when we start establishing this very risky invitation that we're going to be a culture that's free? And therefore, we're not going to mandate that the people that come through the door look like us, talk like us, even believe like us when they walk in. Because that gets super, super risky. All of a sudden, we're saying, we're okay with really ugly messes. We're okay with people doing stupid things. We're okay to have things that we're going to need to clean up. We're okay with people that are going to offend other people. Are we, though? We're, we're, we're okay with the smells spiritual and physical. We're okay with the sights. But how many, like how bad are you talking about? I, I don't know. How bad are we talking about? Because I can't mandate this. We will only go as far as we go together. Because I can say something and people can find me really friendly and welcoming and free. But if we don't have a culture of freedom, someone can come in and feel completely judged and like an outsider and they don't find a place of growth and a connection point to Jesus because of what we've established. It actually requires all of us to establish this thing. And we have to be willing to do it. Are we ready? Are we, ready? Are we willing to do it? I think we are, but I think some of the response today is is let's give that to the Lord and say, yes, we're ready for the messes, we're ready to do it together, and we're ready to establish a culture of freedom where people can really be free. And the only requirement is, is you can't be here without getting introduced to the presence of Jesus. That's, that's really the only focus. He's everything. And when he's everything, everyone can come and taste. So, no idea where I am. That was John 8. And so I want to kind of end by saying this, and then Sue's going to come up and, and uh, have some fun. Our, one of our anchor verses as a church is, is Roman, in Romans 8. And it says, all of creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons and daughters of God, right? 
that verse is really, really significant, and it was even highlighted uh, while we were in France. I do I want to read that section because it's a little bit longer section than just that one verse. And sometimes when you quote the verse or you see the verse on the website or on signage and stuff, you forget kind of what's happening in there. But if you go to Romans um, 8, verse 18, this is the context of what's happening there. And Paul is saying this when he writes the letter to the Romans. He says, For I consider the sufferings of the present time, he's in prison, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed for us, to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, two more verses, but we ourselves who have the first, few, first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Let's stop there. The reality is this. He's saying that there's this future glory and the creation's been groaning until now. So there's this tension between we are to give them a vision of heaven on earth now as we wait with eager expectation of the hope of the fullness of what Jesus has already done. So it's absolutely looking ahead with hope in the midst of our suffering and questions. And it's absolutely saying right now, everything that creation has been eagerly groaning for has its answer in you and I. It's the most beautiful, mind-blowing, twisted piece of scripture. And the reason why it's one of our anchor verses is because this is the privilege we have to work this out. To what degree do we have access to this right now? And I'd say the only thing that puts a limit on that is you and I. So to end, I want to remind us of a couple things. As we step into freedom and bring others with us, This culture of freedom is going to look weird. We're going to have some weird fruit, to use that metaphor again and again, but the fruit's going to be worth it. Adam's problem, I can't let you see me. I'm naked. Let him see you. God said, who told you you were naked? Because God was willing to see him. The heart of God is to hide your weakness with his strength. And when Jesus comes in, who rep represents the Father perfectly, his response is, I'm the truth, and I'm going to set you free. As we respond this morning, can we let the God of truth tell you the truth about yourself? When God names an addiction, or he names a blockage that's holding you back from freedom, it's when we listen and let him work rather than arguing about whether it's really an issue that he can work. 
Let him speak the truth so freedom can come through. It's the heart of God, and it's the message of Jesus to determine to bring us into freedom. Why don't you come up, close this out. Yeah, he's coming up. Amen. So to close this out, it's kind of fun. I get to ask you to close your eyes so that no one's really looking at me and I can just talk to you. Um, but I'm going to lead us into a time of encounter. And Chrissy did this also in our uh, time in France. And it just brought what God had just released, your freedom, your liberation. It brought it from hearing it in our head down into our hearts and into our spirits. So I want to ask you this morning, with your eyes shut, to reflect. What decisions have you made along the way? In the desert of our lives, the desert seasons, we can so often make choices that are shaped by pain, shaped by the poverty of the situation, and those choices or thoughts or a vow, those need rejecting. They have no space in our new liberated lives. So I'm just going to go through some blocks or hindrances to receiving God's grace, receiving the freedom that Christian spoke on. These are often, they're in our hearts, they're in our minds. And simply when I say vow, what it is, it's an inner agreement that blocks the flow of God's goodness working out in our lives. And powerful if left unrecognized and unchallenged. So what we're going to do today is we're going to recognize some and we're going to challenge them. So number one, I'm going to go through a list. And this may not connect with you at all, but it may very much resonate. Number one, a vow or a statement, an inner agreement you may have made is, I failed before in this area, so it's best if I steer clear of ever going there again or having another go at it. In saying that, we block restoration. I don't want to move beyond my family and friends around me, as it'll set me apart from them and make me different. We block healthy ambition and purpose. It'll cause a whole lot of disruption if and I open up this can of worms after all these years. So better left. We block forgiveness. Out of sight, out of mind. It's not visibly hurting anyone, so let's just keep it hidden. We block and avoid transparency and honesty. I don't understand it all, so it's best not to venture out into the unknown, but stay where I feel safe. We block courage and faith by leaning on our own understanding. I'm successful, I'm comfortable. Why shake the cage? We set ourselves above God's choices, pride, and block worship and servant living. I've done enough with the lot I've been given. We block abundance. And finally, my life has been hard, and I've had my fair share of trouble, but I'm surviving. I'm getting on. I'm doing okay. We block exchanges of for of ashes for beauty, 
we block transformation. So if any of these agreements, what we're doing is we blocking, we are blocking the goodness of God for what we deem as good as intelligent reasons. But guys, God's commitment is to us and he's waiting for our response. He's giving us an invitation and he desires our freedom coming from a place of response rather than he doesn't react to our damage. The challenge is though, as Christian spoke on it, is learning not to block his love with vows and walls and to be so fully trusting of his goodness that we welcome him into every past event, every historical down the descent line, giving him free access to open up our lives, to letting ourselves be seen. Because really, guys, there's nothing to fear except life without him. Nothing in our life is too hard or too deep or too wounded for God to go there. So what we're gonna do is really three simple things. We're just gonna ask the Holy Spirit to come and let him bring to your remembrance what he wants you to deal with today. And once he does that, you can do it under your breath or in your heart, but we're gonna reject that vow or that agreement that we've made and renounce. Renounce is simply breaking agreement with. And then we never forget to receive the freedom. Receive what God is filling you with instead because he's never gonna leave you empty. During pre-service prayer, I saw, or we saw corporately, that some of us had thorns in us or at times had made almost an inner vow to protect yourself. And I saw a line in the sand. Like we said, I mean, it can be hard things that you've gone through. Like for me, I grew up feeling very rejected time after time after time. And I could have just said, well, I was the first believer in my family line history. It's too much to open up to love. You just get hurt. I'm not going to do it. And I would have rejected meeting Christian. Or it can be a happy, not so intense vow. Like one time I showed up early and I was like, this is stupid. I feel awkward. No one's here. I'm never going to show up early again. And if you know me, I've been working to break that vow (laughs) to be on time more and more because that doesn't honor people. But I realized the Lord's like, do you remember you made that vow? So you can't help but show up late because there's power of life and death in your words. And daily he sets before us choices to choose life or choose death. And it's in the agreement that's between our ears. But he showed me when he said that, yeah, you may have drawn a line in the sand, but if you're looking at an ocean, when a wave comes, it covers over that line. And that's what his grace does. It comes and it covers over those lines that we've written in the sand. And it covers it again and again. And you know, even if you built the biggest, dug the biggest hole or built the biggest sandcastle, his grace will wash away that vow. So Alberto's just gonna play. And you just take a minute to let the Holy Spirit bring that to memory. 
we break agreement with it once it comes, we reject it, and then say, as Christian was saying, Jesus has the words of life. What are you speaking over me instead? So Holy Spirit, I invite you to come. Speak to your children who were created to hear your voice.